Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Greg Castillo on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Cold War on the Home Front, The Soft Power of Mid-Century Design. If you are of my generation, you probably grew up in a smallish house, and it had a kitchen in it. That kitchen might have been lime green, avocado, perhaps even lemon yellow. Undoubtedly, it had Formica floors and a stove top. If you were really on the cutting edge, you might have had a microwave. I didn't see one until I was, I think, in my late 20s. But in any event, if you grew up in such a home, you probably were unaware that it was a weapon in the Cold War. That microwave, a gun. That's right. As Greg Castillo explains in this fascinating new book, the government of the United States was very interested in using domestic design as a weapon in the Cold War. They sent tours of people equipped with these kitchens around Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in order to impress their citizens, or as some people would say subjects, with the bounty which was to be had by means of capitalism. Similarly, Greg points out, the people of the Soviet bloc, and particularly the Communist Party that controlled the Soviet bloc, was interested in demonstrating the superiority of the socialist way of life. So they, in turn, put on exhibitions themselves of ideal socialist domesticity. And this included a lot of industrial design as well. It's really a fascinating book, especially if you're interested in design and architectural history and that sort of thing. I know that I am. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Greg. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good. And here in beautiful, sunny Northern California. Sunny Northern California. Uh, Berkeley, California, correct? Berkeley, California is right. That's really great. I, I used to live there myself. And uh, uh-huh. now that I, I've told people on the show this before, but I left California because I thought the weather was boring. And so now uh-huh. I live here in Iowa where the weather can kill you. Right. Well, but at least you're not bored. That's true. I'm not. So I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Greg Castillo today, and we will be discussing his fascinating book, Cold War on the Homefront, The Soft Power of Mid-Century Design. I really love this book. As I was telling Greg in the pre-interview, I picked it right out of the catalog when I saw it, and I contacted the wonderful people at the University of Minnesota Press because this book touches on a number of my almost fetishistic interests in things like design and in um, Soviet history and, and, and American history, history of Eastern Europe and in communism and in capitalism. Uh, and I should also say, again, in another shout-out to the people at the University of Minnesota, they did a really fantastic job producing this book. It's beautiful. No, I, I was incredibly pleased with it myself. It and, is a beautiful uh, book. I'd like to shout them out, too. Thank yeah, you very it, much. It is really – I get a lot of books from publishers, I tell you what. And uh, this one – uh, gets an A plus for design. I don't know who's who was who was on board with that, but they get an A plus. So anyway, Greg, why don't you begin the interview for us by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in a small town in uh, northern Connecticut, and uh, you know it was a classic little pretty New England town. 
Uh, and so uh, I had my first, I think, induction, my first aha moment with regard to architecture when I was a kid and visited Latin America. My dad did business there. And uh, I saw for the first time this really exuberant modern architecture from the 1950s and 60s. And one of the reasons it could be so exuberant is because there were at that time so few issues with, uh, you know, uh, trying to ha- having to heat the cooling, uh, heat the building. Sorry. So <laughs> yeah. um, there were these buildings that were in amazing shapes, lifted off the ground with breezeways, and I thought, wow, that's what architecture is. Well, then when I came back to New England, I realized that I was surrounded by beautiful neoclassical architecture as well. But I think that was the moment that I, that architecture and design first uh, came onto my radar by seeing something that was so, so different uh, to anything that I had known before. Uh, so that interest uh, continued along. I uh, uh, went to college at first thinking that I would be a professional photographer, uh, did uh, a four-year uh, BFA in photography mm-hmm. at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And then uh, the second conversion moment came when my parents decided to build a house, couldn't find anything they really liked because they were really interested during this first oil crisis in energy-efficient design. Mm-hmm. And uh, together we designed a, an earth-sheltered house a uh, very uh, good architect and engineer from the University of Minnesota where they were doing that kind of work, got involved and uh, did the plans and the engineering, and it was built. Uh, Fortunately for me, it was sold because it was really a naive design, Uh, but I had a great time doing it, and I realized that architecture really was where my passions were. Mm -hmm. So I um, studied architecture and then immediately went into architectural history Mm -hmm. because even with a degree, I think my designs were still a bit naive, but I could write. So uh, I started investigating the history of architecture, and that's actually how I became an architectural historian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of an unusual choice for a practitioner to enter the academy like that. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you did, though. <laughs> Let me just say that. that. Tell me how you came to write Cold War on the Home Front. Uh, well, it was a, a um, sort of long and uh, a changing uh, research direction. Uh, my research interests in Eastern European and Soviet architecture came when I was a research assistant to Spiro Kostov. Spiro Kostov was the distinguished uh, sort of dean of architectural historian of history, architectural history at Berkeley. He's the author of A History of Architecture, which was long one of the most uh, subscribed uh, college architectural history textbooks. And he had actually always hated Germany. And he always always hated Germany because he detested German food. So this shows how, you know, uh, personal peculiarities affect your research interests. And so... By the time I worked for him, he had decided it was about time to start looking at uh, Germany. He uh, wrote, or we together wrote and received a fairly large uh, travel grant that allowed me to go along as a photographer, and I have to say a chauffeur, a bag carrier, (laughs) and so forth. So uh, those were the good old days of academia. And so uh, uh, we visited Berlin, 
at that time crossed, divided Berlin, went to East Berlin with our little day passes and our mandatory, you know, twenty dollars of converted money, and uh, got in a uh, subway uh, in the center of Berlin and came up uh, at the beginning of a grand boulevard that is now called the Karl Marx Allee, but in its day it was called the Stalin Allee, and this was really a an amazing sort of socialist, realist, neoclassical building project undertaken by a nation that was essentially impoverished, mm-hmm. uh, filled with really, one has to say, quite luxurious apartments for the time, if you consider that all around it people were living in things like ruins. And this was supposed to be a kind of, not a scale model, but a full-scale model of what the socialist future was to be. And uh, I mean, I was just, my jaw dropped, because I'd never seen anything like it. A, you know, a 20th century uh, mod- uh, modern era neoclassical architecture filled with, you know, Doric columns and, uh, uh, you know, tile reliefs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And Kostov gave one of his classic sort of throwaway comments. He said, you know, this architecture was built from Berlin all the way to Beijing, mm-hmm. an entire hemisphere, but you won't find it in a Western architectural textbook. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my God, that's really interesting. I went back to Berkeley, found out that that was exactly the case, that this, had, this architecture, this neoclassical Soviet style, had been essentially written out of history. And I started to investigate it uh, on my own to find out what what it was that a culture thought it was doing by reviving neoclassicism in the interest of a communist proletariat. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wrote a dissertation about uh, architecture and divided Berlin and uh, filed my Ph.D. and got my first job and got uh, another grant after a few years to developed my dissertation into a book. Mm-hmm. There was a chapter of the book that I had never written, and that was really delving from the macro scale of urban planning and architecture down to sort of the micro scale of what household design was like. And so I started uh, doing research on that chapter, went to the uh, National Archives in College Park, Maryland, and came upon a file of pictures that were collected by the U.S. Information Agency, which included pictures that were taken for uh, essentially publicity purposes uh, by Marshall Plan projects, mm-hmm. and found this entire cache of uh, photographs of American model homes built in Berlin, in Poland, uh, and I thought, this is really remarkable. I've never <laughs> seen anything, uh, anything about these homes. So I started work on that chapter. It very quickly uh, turned into an article. The article sort of uh, was uh, somebody approached me about writing a book uh, based on that article, and essentially uh, one chapter of a dissertation metastasized into an entire book, which became Cold War on the Home Front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how, in a certain sense, different fields are stovepiped. Because as I said to to you in the the pre-interview, these um, model homes and the tours that accompanied them uh, are quite well known among American Russian historians because a lot of us 
uh, actually were engaged as uh, translators on them. I have I wasn't personally, but I have friends who were on, for example, as I told you, the tractor circuit. So tractors yeah. would be sent all over Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and they had these bright young Americans who could speak whatever language it happened to be, and they would tell the people about these tractors. And mm-hmm. I, I never met anyone who went on one of the home tours, but I knew that they existed because that's where the kitchen debate occurred, right. and we'll come to that in just a second. Uh, yeah. But it's a, it's a terrific it's a terrific topic, um, particularly because of that first thing that you said about the invention, I would say, of this hybrid modernist neoclassical architecture during Stalin's reign, really. He was a huge fan of, of classicism. Right. And for, for those people that don't really know what classicism is, why don't you just give a very brief definition, a, a paragraph? Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, the, the classical tradition, we can say, is uh, what had always been held up as uh, the West's uh, particular sort of heritage in architectural form. Looking back to... Uh, Classical Greece, uh, the Parthenon, for example, the kind of neoclassical form of, uh, you know, freestanding columns uh, supporting a cornice or a pediment on a building, uh, generally bilaterally symmetrical, all of the things that we associate, in fact, with buildings like uh, the Capitol building in Washington, the White House, those are all neoclassical Mm -hmm. buildings. And... uh, because Soviet architecture emerged, of course, after 1918-1920, when the Soviet Union became a separate nation, uh, even Soviet architects presumed that this venture into the new world of uh, communism would demand a modern architecture. And so there were initially some uh, path-breaking modernist movements in the Soviet Union, specifically constructivism became quite important. Mm -hmm. And then under Stalin in 1932, uh, there were suddenly some moves to actually do exactly the opposite, at least so it seemed to viewers in the West. So Modernism was out, neoclassicism was in, neoclassicism would become, according to Stalin, the uh, sort of uh, expropriated cultural legacy taken from the bourgeoisie and given to an enlightened proletariat. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can say, at least from what I found looking in uh, my book, that the proletariat, at least in East Germany, were not always convinced that they actually wanted that <laughs> neoclassical heritage. They liked modern furnishings and uh, buildings as well, or usually even more. But uh, that was not, according to Stalin and other Communist Party leaders in the post-war period in Eastern Europe, that was not really appropriate for uh the socialist world. That was considered to be a kind of uh, uh, culturally decadent Western uh, form of architecture and design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very interesting point. Before we get to it, that is how modernism became, uh, to borrow a term from the Nazis, which is always a dangerous thing to do, degenerate (laughs) degenerate, um, art. Uh, Tell us a little about modernism, because I think most people, and you mentioned constructivism as well. I'm a big fan of constructivist 
architecture, and you can still see a lot of it in in Moscow. It's kind of buried, but it's still there. Tell sure. us where this came from, what what its roots were, and how it got to Russia. Well, um, modernism, what we uh, what we would see as kind of the canon of modernism today is a movement that was largely driven by architects who felt in uh, usually the late teens, early 20s, that the new conditions of society, the new industrial society, a new world of mass production, was uh, really so different than the past that past cultural forms just were inadequate to express this new world that had developed in the 20th century. So architects uh, who were, we have to say, a minority, and they were sort of cultural radicals, uh, abandoned the old neoclassical traditions, which, which had continually been recycled in Western Europe, uh, and essentially said that an entirely new architecture had to be devised sometimes along functional lines, so that essentially in the old uh, sort of hackney term, form would follow function. Mm -hmm. But often if you look more closely, especially at things like the works that the Soviet constructivists did, there really isn't much that's functional about them. I mean, they're very extravagant. I'm glad to hear you say that because there really isn't. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're extravagant sort of statements of faith in in a future that would be utterly different than the past. And I think that's the main uh, point of this uh, uh, modernist tradition, which is, of course, it's now a tradition, is that you can't look backwards, that mm-hmm. everything has to be reinvented for the specific conditions of culture and economy today. Right. Since we're only dealing with um, sound here, I was about to say since this is radio, but it really isn't quite radio, uh, maybe uh, since we discussed classicism in terms of things like columns and pediments and this sort of thing, what are the sort of characteristic elements of modernist architecture in contrast to those columns and pediments and uh, sort of flowery things that architects have a million names for and I can never remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not alone there. <laughs> There's so many names for those things. Uh, but um, I think one can say, of course, there are many different modernist uh, sort of variants of the modernist movement, but to, to create a kind of a general umbrella category, we can say that Many of them have turned their back on surface decoration. Uh, many of them look toward uh, the pure uh, sort of geometries of planar walls, uh, the window pattern, not decorated in frames or anything, but just clearly uh, inscribed in a wall as actually the graphic, uh, these bold graphic patterns that are going to define architecture. In terms of the inside of the building, often the open plan, open interiors are seen as uh, more desirable than uh, floor plans that are cut up into separate uh, tiny cell-like rooms. There's a desire for space to flow through the interior of the building as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think if uh, most people will recognize this, tell me if I'm wrong, also in terms of industrial design, if you go to Ikea, <laughs> you're going to see yeah. a lot of modernism. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Ikea is amazing because uh, basically I believe that Ikea took one of the dreams of these radical modernists, which was to take design and make it available to the masses. Uh, and uh, that's what they have done with uh, some designs that are actually really, really good. Now, the way that they've done it is, of course, by uh, having these things made in, you know, uh, abroad in 
countries with relatively low wages. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing about IKEA is that it's not ideologically sort of convinced about the superior superiority of modernism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go to IKEA and buy some flowered, uh, you know, side share as well. So sure. it, it has a balance of things. So it's more oriented toward consumers and not uh, ideological statements about aesthetics. Right. I, th- I think it also wouldn't be inappropriate to say, at least to the Americans who are listening today, that many of the buildings that Americans tend to dislike today are modernist buildings. Yeah. They're yeah, not in favor. I love them. I think they're great. But uh, I think I'm alone. My wife thinks I'm nuts. But, <laughs> well, and, you know, I think a conversion experience, if you look at modernist buildings, is not to look at a huge one, but to look at some of the small ones. So one of the things that happens to us when we look at modernist buildings is we sort of collapse the uh, issues of a modernist style and modern scale. Because, of course, as society has changed, uh, these buildings have become enormous. And there's something a little bit unappealing about any building that's absolutely overwhelming in size. Mm-hmm. So uh, especially if, if one looks at some of the small modernist villas, especially the mid-century modernist ones, which have become very popular in the past decade, uh, mm-hmm. those seem to have a kind of charm that much of the gigantic sort of elephantine modernism that you see in office towers, for example, really lack. I, I tell you what, I will take a uh, 1962 ranch-style house over a McMansion any day of the week. Oh, uh, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm good. pretty much alone there, I think. It would be good for the environment if you, uh, if you uh, weren't alone because uh, – you know, even in terms of what we'll be talking about uh, of the houses that were sent by the U.S. for display in Europe and in the Soviet Union, those houses galvanized audiences in those countries as being so generous in space. And they, in fact, were houses that were between 900 yeah, and 1,000 square feet. And the thing that one has to keep in mind about the transformation of American suburban homes is the ones that we sent as Americans to Eastern Europe and Europe to show uh, Europeans what the American way of life was all about. Those little houses have almost nothing to do with the average suburban home, for example, built, let's say, in 2006, which would be likely to have a three-car garage that was as big as those entire homes. It is pretty remarkable to think about. We'll come to that in a second. So uh, tell us a little bit about how um, – so what we've established so far is that uh, with the uh, – uh, what does one want to say? Uh, with the rise of Stalinism, uh, this sort of socialist neoclassicism was in. And mm-hmm. then in post-World War II America and I guess in Western Europe as well, uh, modernism had a kind of resurgence. Uh, what did the Nazis think about modernism just to put that in perspective? Well, I mean, actually, there's a lot of um, scholarly debate on that because one of the things you realize as an architectural historian is that when you look back at documents that might have been written, histories that might have been written only 20 to 25 years ago, they really are imbued with a kind of Cold War ethos. And so uh, when people, let's say, in the 70s wrote about the Nazis, they essentially said that they were anti-modern, that they called... uh, all modern uh, cultural phenomenon, from architecture all the way through art and sculpture, that the Nazis called that work uh, degenerate, culturally degenerate. And now when we look with a a little more distance at what uh, Nazi culture was like, we uh, we can understand that 
Uh, of course, they did have an art show called Degenerate Art. They condemned certain modernist art as Bolshevik or Jewish. Uh, but in fact, in the realm of architecture, they had an incredibly sophisticated modern architecture that was actually aesthetically uh, really clean and crisp and uh, uh, aesthetically accomplished. However, it was only for industry. Mm -hmm. In other words, in Nazi Germany, a sort of glass and steel house would have been considered, well, first of all, it wouldn't have been built because steel was needed by uh, military industry, so it wouldn't, was not available as a, uh, a material to build houses with. But um, in any case, it would have been in a, inappropriate, considered culturally inappropriate for residential architecture. But it was considered completely appropriate for uh, industrial architecture. And industrial architecture was not just functional, it was also highly representational because uh, Nazi Germany wanted to uh, show both its own citizens and the world that it was a modern industrial power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so it's, history it's a, is being actually rewritten at this moment uh, about that topic. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I was just watching, a, I guess maybe reading a book, I can't remember, about uh, Hitler's plans for Linz. And if you look at uh, his own and Speer's architectural designs, they, they look for all the world to me like what we would call federalist architecture. That is the kind of architecture you see in buildings built in the 30s on right. the mall in, in yep. the United States. They, they, yeah. they really aren't in any way distinguished from those buildings. And some of them have columns, uh, but they're always false columns, if you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> they're yeah. never real columns. Yeah. Um, and they have big, flat, broad uh, sort of stone surfaces, which is, again, one of the kind of marks of that federalist architecture. They're, they are hard to classify. I know that in terms of industrial design, you're, you're quite right that they uh, built these, uh, what I think many Americans would call kind of Bauhaus uh, factories and things. And one of the uh, elements that survives today, I think, is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with these, but several German and Austrian cities still have these things called flak towers. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> which are huge monuments to modernism. They're these enormous right. things that are basically too big to destroy. Yeah. They're huge they're concrete. To modern war. Yeah. They are. They are enormous, skyline dominating, and they really are too big to destroy. They're just yeah. too big. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they're very clean, and, uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit military in look because they have um, kind of crenellation, but uh, right. they, they, uh, but they, they are modernist structures. You know, there's some curves in them a little bit, like you find those banks of windows that are curved and uh, right. constructivist um, yeah. buildings, which I really love. Uh, but they have these curves. They're not just angles. And, you know, they're, they're really quite modern in that way. So anyway, the Nazis, perhaps modernist, perhaps not some hybrid thereof. But then after the war, um, there's this tremendous transition that occurs in the West, at least. And I know this because I know a little bit about American uh, domestic architecture, mm -hmm. uh, that the ideal in the 1920s and 30s uh, was a kind of a, a knockoff craftsman uh, aesthetic. And, yeah. and people in America love these houses today. In California, you call them bungalows. And in, right. here we call them... I guess we just call them craftsman houses or kit houses. Yep, exactly. But then after, in, 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 in approximately, I guess it's about 1955, 1960, uh, something profoundly modern comes on the scene, and that's the ranch house. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Well, the ranch house is, a, is a, an interesting house because it's uh, utterly, what's well, quite modern in terms of its, uh, uh, in the abstract sense, in terms of its floor plan, the way it's built, its technologies. It's usually uh, built on a slab on grade, and in which you just pour the concrete slab on grade rather than having a basement. Uh, it's often built with 
what for the time were relatively advanced uh, technologies and labor-saving technologies. For example, houses at Levittown uh, were built uh, of pre-cut uh, lumber kits that were delivered bundled to the site where uh, um, uh, carpenters would simply assemble those pre-cut pieces, and then the next thing that was delivered to the site was a bundle of all of the plumbing that would be needed for that house in its uh, the correct uh, pipe sizes and things uh, mm -hmm. and uh, length. So then uh, plumbers would descend on the site and assemble that. Uh, things When the house was done, it was painted with uh, a spray painter, which was against uh, previous union regulation. So there was a lot of modern... Uh, technology and forms of labor organization to build these houses, but uh, because of uh, market preference, they looked sort of somewhat traditional. In other words, there was a, a style of house at Leventhal, for example, that was a kind of colonial salt box. Uh, or in the West, they could be, they were called ranch houses. They could have some uh, sort of little Western touches. So they're quite synthetic in terms of their form, but they really were uh, the mass uh, market version of a suburban villa uh, created for the first time within the reach of uh, even returning GIs because of changes in uh, mortgage regulations. So that, now that's a big topic mm -hmm. today, but uh, the new kinds of mortgages that were uh, longer than uh, in terms of payback time, which of course made the payments less, put those houses within the reach of lots and lots of people. I, I always thought of the, the, the ranch house as uh, Frank Lloyd Wright for the masses. Am I wrong about that? Oh, uh, well, uh, <laughs> you can go and say, yeah, you're right. I can tell you that Frank Lloyd Wright would have hated that description because <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright had a Frank Lloyd Wright house for the masses called the Usonian house, which uh -huh. essentially has many uh, uh, qualities in common with a tract home. However, it really looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright home, okay. which is important for him. Okay. Well, I'm sorry about that, Frank, if you're listening from wherever <laughs> you might be listening. So they took these um, these houses in all their modernity and their kitchens, which were really the kind of most remarkable part of them because yeah. the kitchens uh, go from looking like what I would call a mm, a workshop mm -hmm. to a command post yeah if you know what I mean everything is yeah. integrated it looks like the yeah. it looks like this this bridge of the starship enterprise yeah. these kitchens do I grew up in ones I know exactly everything's built in they got a lot of buttons dials uh -huh. knobs you know they look very fancy so they yeah. take these houses and these kitchens with Formica and everything else, and avocado green and whatever mm -hmm. they they take and they put them on tour. How did this happen? Uh, well, uh, how it happened was really uh, beginning in the late 1940s uh, in uh, Germany, which was a very important site for America. Germ Post-war Germany had a number of things that demanded American attention. One was an economy in ruins. Uh, another was a population that. Americans and American military and State Department people were not really sure whether Germany would try to remilitarize. Of course, it had already been at the center of two world wars, whether Germany could be integrated within a peaceful Europe. So America um, paid a lot of attention to what was happening in Germany. And uh, one of the things that was of great concern, because Germany was divided, half of it was under Soviet rule, the borders were uh, permeable, unlike today, where they're uh, not today. Unlike uh, later, after uh, the 19, early 1960s, there was a wall, for example. But 
in that period of time, uh, inhabitants of Berlin could just walk from socialist to capitalist Berlin. And so, of course, Berlin became one of the great centers for Cold War espionage. But all of that just means that there was a lot of uh, cultural influence uh, by um, uh, Soviet, Soviet culture, communist politics, and uh, what uh, Americans were worried about was a kind of uh, political propaganda being put out by the USSR, which many intellectuals in Europe at that time agreed with, which was that the U.S. was a kind of militaristic superpower ruled by uh, to put it nicely, cultural idiots. In other words, they really saw the U.S. as a place that uh, was a force for the degradation, cultural and social degradation of uh, a kind of older European uh, culture. And so uh, America needed to fight that uh, image of uh, essentially cultural primitives. And also the U.S needed to try to, uh, it decided, the State Department decided, needed to instill a consumer economy in Germany. They felt that that was the most logical way of securing Germany within a broader uh, sort of economically and politically unified Western Europe. And so the houses uh, that were sent over, these dream houses, served a number of purposes. I guess you could say first and foremost, they were a wonderful platform to show what the you know, sparkling capitalist future would look like for Western Europe. Now, today, when we look at Germany as the economic uh, engine of Europe, uh, the economy that's one of the strongest in Europe, it's easy to forget that at the time that America was involved after the war, uh, cities were in ruins, there was an economy that was in ruin, People were living like, uh, you know, three and four to a room in apartments in Berlin. Uh, most people shared bathrooms on the hall of a sort of old uh, walk-up, a brownstone walk-up, if they hadn't been bombed. So living conditions were pretty primitive, and it was not at all and had never been a mass consumer society. People, There was some mass consumption of things like uh, small goods, um, things like uh, entertainment, but uh, because uh, Europeans believed in thrift, especially Germans, uh, there was not the kind of uh, purchasing on credit that actually turns out to be necessary for goods like uh, kitchen appliances to be able to be affordable by people, at least at that point in time. I mean, I, th I, so, think th I was just to, to interrupt for a second. I think it's sure. important to, to remind people that... Um, although this is a somewhat debatable point, uh, uh, National Socialism was very popular in Germany, and it was socialism, uh, that they preached the kind of aesthetic which was a very practical and economical. They did not think that conspicuous consumption was really something that was virtuous. And really vibrant capitalism, I don't know, almost requires that conspicuous consumption be labeled something other than bourgeois affectation. I think broad swaths of the German, vulgar. yeah, exactly. I mean, I think broad swaths of the German public thought that it was vulgar, that really that yeah. it was some sort of bourgeois affectation, that it was vulgar, that it was uh, somehow degrading to uh, involve oneself in all this uh, 
consuming. And, and the Americans went about trying to change that. There are actually some terrific films about this. One of them is The Marriage of Maria Brown, yeah. um, which is a, I rec- highly recommend anybody watch. It really is, it's all about that transition. But anyway, go ahead. So, uh, well, the other thing, too, is we have to keep in mind that uh, it was a household tradition of Germans not to borrow money. That was considered to be uh, the idea that you would uh, pay for things with money you didn't have was considered the worst kind of, uh, uh, you know, family uh, financial policy. Uh, and so America needed to change a lot of things about how Germans consumed their ideas about conspicuous consumption. And the house, uh, the model home, became a very seductive way to present uh, what was at that time called uh, a better life policy. In other words, that if uh, Germans worked hard and didn't join communist labor unions and uh, didn't go on strike, uh, they could have these things that Americans had. In other words, that the difference between America and Germany wasn't that one culture, America, had a kind of a vulgar uh, attitude toward life and that Germans had a proper and cultivated attitude toward life. The idea that the U.S. tried to put across is that the, the cultures were compatible. Well, the only thing that was really different was the standard of living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did the Germans receive these uh, these arguments in architecture? Uh, it's, uh, well, it, it's sort of... Um, in some ways, hard to know because we don't have very accurate uh, reception studies. We know from at least the documents that the U.S. State Department collected that people were actually quite impressed with these homes. Uh, they, uh, young people saw them as plausible uh, depictions of a future. Older Germans were far more skeptical, and it's in, in many ways that that made sense as well. Uh, older Germans probably would not live to see this transformation of the economy into a mass consumption economy that occurred uh, really at the end of the 50s and into the early 60s. Uh, so uh, the reception was mixed, but it certainly was uh, a uh, in in a broader sense of fairly effective way of allowing the U.S. not to be seen as a militaristic superpower. I mean, to present America as a different kind of, uh, one could say, a different kind of empire in Western Europe. The other thing that was a a terrific success in terms of American uh, sort of propaganda efforts to instill consumer habits in Germans was the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we kind of take supermarkets for granted. Uh, that was really an American invention. Uh, it was shipped abroad for the first time, I believe, in the very late 40s uh, by Nelson Rockefeller in conjunction with um, the uh, uh, the oil uh, industry, which the Rockefellers were you know, obviously very invested in. Uh, it was first tried out on foreign soil in uh, Venezuela and considered there a way, because uh, food could be marketed at lower cost, it was in a sense like giving workers a raise without raising their pay because their paycheck would go farther. And so uh, this was exported as well uh, by the U.S. State Department in sort of uh, expositions of supermarkets, specifically uh, geared toward uh, entrepreneurs and businessmen in uh, Germany, and by the mid-60s, the supermarkets were 
so uh, well established in Germany that they were selling most of the food that people bought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, actually, that's interesting about the supermarket when you think about it is when you buy at a supermarket, unlike your little neighborhood uh, store, the way the Germans used to buy, and in many ways still buy, for example, at bakeries, small bakeries, you generally are buying food for that day. Uh, and that was necessary when Germans didn't have things like refrigerators, which we also take for granted. Uh, what a supermarket basically demands, since you're buying larger quantities of food, is that you have the capacity to store it for a few days in your home. So the supermarket and the kitchen with its uh, uh, refrigerator are, in a sense, two things that uh, piggyback on each other in terms of innovation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did the socialist authorities, either in the Soviet Union or in East Germany, respond to the um, presentation, let's say, of American domesticity? Well, uh, the American State Department had a a fiendishly clever uh, plan of how to get East Germans to see their uh, dream homes. And what they did was they held these exhibitions on uh, specific days in the socialist holiday calendar. So the socialist uh, state had big workers' holidays where they would essentially uh, have a big political celebration, big marches in the streets, and for these events, people from all over East Germany and small towns and cities would be bussed into East Berlin. And it was exactly on those days when there was a huge crowd of non-East Berliners from all over East Germany in East Berlin that the U.S. decided to hold its exhibitions, Mm -hmm. its dream home exhibitions. And of course, uh, people were on a political holiday. We have to keep in mind once again that the wall doesn't go up until the early 60s. So in the 50s, Uh, These people can just walk across the border, and they come in great numbers to these exhibitions, partially because if you showed an East German identity card, you got in for a really, really cheap entry fee. And that cheap entry fee was not only an enticement, but also allowed U.S. authorities to keep track of who was seeing their show. And so we know that many, many thousands of East Berliners, really tens of thousands for each of these shows, came to look at American uh, dream homes and their, you know, model families who would actually go through the home pretending to use things and showing people what a house of the future would be like in a capitalist world. And the East Germans were, uh, uh, the East German party was absolutely uh, furious at the success of these propaganda strategies and started to hold more elaborate dream home shows of their own. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the difference between an East German dream home and a West German American-sponsored dream home is that uh, in East Germany, the notion of an enlightened uh, proletariat really focused on cultural commodities like furnishings that were supposed to show uh, how the proletariat would live actually much more like uh, a kind of bourgeois family, uh, they would, uh, you know, have a little reading, reading corner in their living room. They would have fine furnishings. Most of what was displayed was well, we, well beyond the budget of beyond the budget of a East German worker. But one has to say, the objects on display in the American homes uh, that were shown were 
outside of the budgets of most uh, West Berliners as well. The one really crucial distinction was that the kitchen was a huge focus of attention uh, for America in the shows in West Berlin. And the kitchen uh, was really downplayed in the East German homes because those economies were not really geared toward mass uh, technology for consumers. And so uh, in an East German model home, uh, at least of the early 50s, there might be a kitchen called a Zoltovsky kitchen from actually Russia uh, to show what uh, a socialist kitchen would be like. Mm -hmm. But that kitchen with comparison to the ones shown in West Berlin, were really more like kitchens from the 1920s than mm-hmm. kitchens from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a huge transformation that went that took place in the, in the 1950s in terms of uh, in terms of domestic design in, in the Soviet Union, and I assume also in the Eastern Bloc. And that is the, uh, the sort of transition from uh, what they called communal apartments to separate apartments. Um, because right. originally, of course, the communist plans that people would live in these kinds of big kommunalki, they were these uh, right. communal apartments. And then after, after World War II, if I'm not incorrect, they basically gave up on that plan. Well, uh, yeah, they sort of gave up on that. Uh, they gave up on that actually uh, quite a bit earlier. What happened in Russia, uh, in the USSR, is in around the mid-30s, uh, uh, a couple things developed. It was clear that the Soviet government was not going to have money to house lots of workers in nice housing. That was sort of a, a dream. And so uh, what they shifted to do is to recognize that uh, they wanted to make sure that the managers of industry uh, had adequate housing. And so uh, housing turned into essentially a, a higher class phenomenon. That's when the neoclassicism comes in. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are some workers living in those house, house in those neoclassical apartments that are have a couple uh, are mostly management, have a couple workers scattered in. Those are kind of model workers that are rewarded for uh, sort of labor heroism by getting an apartment. And so the whole uh, communal housing uh, uh, notion as a formal ideal of architecture collapses. Uh, in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and that is the architecture that is exported to East Germany as well, this notion of the separate apartment and a uh, very uh, a, a lifestyle, a family lifestyle that looks a lot like a bourgeois lifestyle in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that you always note if you visit, even today, and this is true in the pictures in the book, if you look at their um, model apartments you always see a bookshelf full of books mm-hmm. in the American. Yeah. Like I really remember, I grew up in one of these houses, in one of these ranch houses built on a slab that was, you know, 850 square feet. I don't think we had any books. <laughs> I mean, I know we had a TV room, what we call the TV room, but I don't remember. I mean, there maybe there were some books. I don't know. We didn't have well, a bookshelf, and, though. You know. And see, you turned out just fine. Yeah, I did, I did right. <laughs> yeah, I did okay. My mom was a teacher, though. So uh, oh. In any event, but but this this bookshelf, this sort of totemic presentation of knowledge, is is a, a very important part of Russian apartments. Uh, even today, you will find people, you know, the c- complete works of Tolstoy on their shelves. And I didn't know who Tolstoy was when I was. 18, I suspect. Yeah. But so let's move uh, forward. Well, actually, let's pause for just a second to talk a little bit about the kitchen debate because it actually took place in a kitchen, but not, you know, like yours and mine. 
Right. <laughs> no, the kitchen debate did take place in a, in a model kitchen, and it was uh, uh, now we know a little bit more about that story, uh, which had to do with uh, Nixon and Khrushchev uh, sort of locking horns at the American National Exhibition in Moscow in 1959. This was the first big uh, official Cold War venture in um, sort of uh, joint uh, cultural exchanges. And uh, so American and the USSR had signed an agreement saying that they would each allow each other one exhibition in uh, the, the Moscow or the USSR would be allowed an exhibition in New York. That happened uh, early in 1959. At the end of the summer of 1959, the U.S. gets its shot to put an exhibition in Moscow. And uh, what they do is they create the ultimate sort of propagandistic exhibition of what America's strengths were. Now, America was having some problems in terms of its role in the world at the late 1950s. Uh, they had uh, fallen behind in the space race, so the Soviets put the first uh, uh, satellite in orbit, they put the first uh, satellite with a dog in it in orbit. Uh, <laughs> they have a number of technological successes. They blow up uh, a hydrogen bomb, which shakes everybody up, and uh, they have uh, international uh, ICBM missiles. Uh, uh, these long-range uh, missiles. So the U.S. Uh, the USSR at that moment looked like it was running neck and neck with the U.S. as far as military technology, and the U.S. strategy was to shift the terms of the debate toward consumer culture, which America realized that the Soviet Union was, uh, in a relative sense, lagging far behind in. So America, uh, rather than showing things like models of the nuclear-powered icebreaker ships or showing <laughs> satellites and things like that, they essentially throw, you know, books, uh, household goods, appliances, model homes, model, you know, the new American cars. They throw all of this at the Soviets. And by that time, Khrushchev is walking through this exhibition with uh, Soviet people almost with their mouths hanging open, uh, looking at these things. And uh, Khrushchev was very annoyed. And so... Um, uh, Nixon and Khrushchev, as they're walking through this model home exhibit, uh, some of the Americans who are working the exhibition uh, very cleverly uh, sort of create a diversion which stalls them in front of the uh, kitchen and gives the opportunity for Nixon to begin a debate about the merits of America and capitalism on the basis of home consumption mm -hmm. and actually on the basis of women's roles in these two different societies. So uh, Nixon insists that uh, American capitalism isn't just for big uh, entrepreneurs and big businessmen. It actually is benefiting women. And look at this uh, incredible lemon yellow, all-electric <laughs> kitchen. This is absolutely typical of the ways that America makes living easier for, for women, for its housewives. And, uh, of course, Pravda, uh, the Communist uh, Party newspaper in the USSR, had been denouncing the ex exhibit and its model homes as absolutely untypical for American workers. They basically insisted, you know, these are this is a propaganda ploy. American workers can't possibly live in these homes. 
And so Khrushchev attempts to uh, challenge that notion that this is this kind of home is available to most Americans. And Nixon actually quite skillfully explains how things like installment purchases and uh, long-term mortgages uh, make that house available. Uh, Khrushchev uh, condemns it for the notion of planned obsolescence, which is quite important for the U.S. Uh, Nixon defends planned obsolescence of the uh, appliances as saying, well, by, you know, in 20 years, these appliances will be obsolete, and that's a good thing because the Mm -hmm. next uh, sort of uh, technologies can roll into the kitchen. So it ends up being quite an interesting uh, way of framing what the superpower conflict was all about. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this debate, it ends up being about how the average family can live in these two systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just a fascinating story because it really encapsulates the entire sort of theme of of of, of your book, and, and it's a it's just you know I I never really I, I for some reason I had forgotten that the kitchen debate occurred in one of these kitchens, but now I remember. So anyway, let's go on to uh, the kind of next moment in this, if I recall correctly, and that is uh, after the death of Stalin, there's a kind of rethinking of these things. Uh, by Khrushchev and these folks, uh, and there's an effort to supply the peoples of Eastern Europe and Soviet Union with uh, mass consumer goods. Uh, this is particularly important in East Germany, and there are also some uh, changes in the philosophy of industrial design. Maybe you could talk a little about those. Sure. Well, uh, after, the death of, after the death of Stalin, Khrushchev goes on a campaign to sort of uh, very initially, very carefully uh, shift the discourses about and the, and the public reception of the Stalin era. Of course, for Soviet citizens, and uh, the same message was broadcast throughout Eastern Europe, Stalin was a sort of savior, uh, a pacifist, uh, the greatest military general in the history of the world, one of the greatest intellects in, in world history. And so Khrushchev obviously needs to make a space for himself as a new leader. And uh, one of the ways he does this is to point out how essentially wasteful uh, this very ornate uh, Soviet neoclassical architecture, which we now call socialist realism, uh, how, how wasteful that was economically. And Khrushchev says, you know, for all of the columns and uh, uh, you know scroll work and everything else on these buildings, we could have built more apartments. And so he launches in earnest a mass housing uh, uh, policy, uh, which is going to basically build housing out of precast concrete parts. It's generally what we think of when we think of uh, Soviet-era housing it are these Khrushchev blocks. Uh, and so the, the Khrushchev uh, blocks really created a fundamental change in the way Soviets lived. Uh, first of all, uh, these new apartments were specifically meant for a single family. Now, uh, even though managers of, apart- uh, managers of businesses and big state-owned industries uh, received uh, single-family apartments in the Stalinist era, most workers lived in ad hoc communal situations. In other words, it would be an old house uh, that was meant for a family to live in an apartment. Uh, and in fact, uh, under the Stalinist, in the Stalinist period, because there was so little new housing construction, uh, families would share apartment units at one family to the room. 
Mm-hmm. This created enormous conflicts among people. They were squeezed. They were stressed. It created a kind of culture of surveillance because one way that you could increase your living space in that house, in that informal uh, or ad hoc uh, communal apartment, was to denounce somebody who lived in the room that you wanted to live in, in that house. And in fact, that's one of the main reasons for denunciations in the Stalin era. So Khrushchev, by giving families their own home, creates really for the first time on a mass scale privacy, the notion that you could speak freely in your own home and not be afraid of being overheard by a jealous or angry neighbor. He also does something interesting uh, by creating uh, this new housing type with one family per apartment, which were very small apartments, Mm -hmm. is that he essentially creates a new Soviet mass consumer. Because if you move to your own apartment for the first time, you have to equip the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the Soviet light industry was very underdeveloped and really not making the kind of appliances in the kind of numbers needed for people just to have what we would consider a minimum, minimally sort of outfitted kitchen. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden there is a new demand for a new kitchen appliances, in fact, new kinds of furnishings because these new apartments are very small, so furnishings have to be built at a kind of a smaller scale than older uh, sort of 19th century furnishings. So really a new kind of design ethos comes about in the USSR uh, to basically go back and embrace aspects of modernism that just a few years ago, a few years earlier in the early 50s were denounced as Western and capitalist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think the, the whole story of the what are called Panelnia Dama, these panel houses, is fascinating. We're going to have uh, Kimberly Elman uh, Zarakor on the show in a few months. I think she has a book coming out about the history of the panel houses, specifically in in. Czechoslovakia. Right. Uh, Soviet, Soviets today uh, think about them in um, disdainful terms. Sure. Crucial. Well, yeah. They're, they're fairly uh, badly built, in fact, and uh, uh, the only place that they really look good nowadays is in uh, Germany, because East German panel houses were either torn down or, at great state expense, refurbished with external cladding to give them insulation, which they never had it before, uh, new windows, and mm-hmm. so forth. So actually, there they look much better than they ever did even when they were built. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because there are, um, yeah, there are, if you look at uh, graduate student housing for some reason in the United States, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks a little bit like panel houses in some in some ways. Even here at the University of Iowa, we have some that are kind of modernist in design, and they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they... Um, they really look a little bit like panel houses, and, and they tend to get torn down. But in any event, the thing that uh, is of interest to me is that precisely when uh, the Soviets were embracing modernism because it was inexpensive and uh, therefore capable of housing the masses, that uh, a lot of American architecture, and especially uh, in, industrial design and uh, interior design, became very Baroque. I'm thinking of, you know, uh, I don't know, any, any place you Hefner ever lived. <laughs> it may, may have been a model American citizen, but not exactly a typical American. No, citizen. but you know, you know what I mean. I mean these shag carpets and the yeah. big plush couches and the, I don't know the the drape, the heavy draperies and the whole nine yards. I, this was well. You got to you have to also uh, understand that e- even good design in the U.S. is on a consumer cycle. I mean, essentially. 
styles must change because things must become obsolete to get people to redo their yeah. homes and buy new stuff. So uh, essentially, uh, that's one of the tragedies about good design in uh, this kind of uh, fast cycling consumer economy that even if you uh, fall upon a kind of ideal design for any given object, it's got to go. I mean, yeah. listen, personally, that's what I think happened to cars like Mercedes and Audi. You know, they somehow uh, developed these fantastic designs 10 years ago, and now, you know, they just keep on changing and changing. And mm -hmm. personally, I just want to say, you guys, stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's not looking any better. Yeah, no, it's true. It's I true. hope those aren't your advertisers on this show, or else you're in big trouble. Well, I don't have any advertisers, but if anybody sure. wants to... Pony up for some advertising. I'd be happy to do it. Okay. As long as it doesn't involve naked ladies. I don't do that kind of advertising. On so. radio, that's actually not Yeah, a naked ladies might be okay on radio. You're right. I, but I, no, I don't do that kind of stuff. We're very clean. We're a very family-friendly show. Um, yeah, well. Let me, ask, let me ask you this because we're almost out of time. Um, was anybody's mind changed by these respective exhibitions? Were any minds? Were any minds changed? Yeah. Did, did the Americans start to think, oh, geez, you know, this uh, – this sort of uh, Soviet modernism or sort of neoclassical modernism is great. Or did any of the East Germans say, you know, I really have to have a ranch house with an avocado kitchen? Well, actually, the most interesting uh, minds that were changed were the minds that actually weren't supposed to be changed. Uh, Russia, uh, the Soviets sent uh, essentially what you would have to say were uh, agents of industrial espionage. They sent uh, uh, highly placed officials from the building industry to the U.S. in the 1950s, mid, mid to late 1950s, to be able to uh, essentially look at houses, uh, assess, assess construction materials, because when Khrushchev was going to start his mass housing construction campaign, uh, he essentially wanted to be able to take advantage of uh, whatever uh, the best technologies for doing that were. So uh, these uh, Soviets who were essentially assigned to investigate ways of building apartment blocks uh, very cost-effectively came to the U.S., were shown around by American developers, ended up buying lots of product uh, samples, which they then shipped back to the USSR for evaluation. But one of the things that they were assigned to do was actually buy a tract home. And so as they crossed the U.S., every time they'd visit a developer and see a new tract home development, they would ask if they could buy a tract home and have it shipped to Russia. And uh, most of the developers, uh, first of all, thought they were kidding and then said, you know, we don't do – we're not in the export business, so we won't do this. So finally they found a uh, developer right here in the Bay Area – uh, that was building a, a kind of a suburban tract home development. And uh, he agreed to supply them with all of the unassembled pieces for a tract home, plus all of its model home furnishings and all of its appliances and have it all shipped to Russia. The only thing that was not included in that package of stuff that was uh, for a model home were the bricks and the mortar for the fireplace. Well, when he, uh, this uh, uh, Russian, uh, highly placed Russian housing expert, was interviewed uh, in on the West Coast before he left, he admitted that he actually loved split-level homes. <laughs> he, he had fallen in love. He had been seduced by the American split-level, and he mused to reporters about how much he would like to live in a split-level home. And the one thing he would change is that 
when he woke up in the morning, he would not want to look up in bed at sheetrock. He'd put a wooden ceiling up there. Mm. But aside from that, it was perfect. So we can say that, you know, in, in effect, that's really one of the most amazing minds that were changed. And uh, the mind of someone who was supposed to come here and not be seduced by the American single family home. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of uh, domestic, well, there's a lot of house building going on in, uh, in Russia today. And uh, let me just put it this way. Russia does not have a well-developed domestic housing industry because the mm-hmm. things that are built, um, I don't even know what to say about them. There's a lot of what I'd call <laughs> vernacular architecture being yeah. constructed yep. just yep. like they're building stuff. And, sure. uh, and in a certain way, it's great because a thousand flowers are blooming. But in terms of aesthetic coherence, it is found wanting, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, and 99% of Russians still live in, I don't know, 99%, but very, some very large portion of Russians in, in, in East Germans and Poles and so on and so forth still live in large housing blocks. Um, That's right. Yeah. So uh, that tradition um, continues. So, uh, Greg, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, let me ask you to close the interview our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your, uh, what is your next project, or what are you working on now? Well, the next project is actually an edited uh, book. I'm uh, both teaching a, a graduate seminar on cultural Americanization and trying to look uh, at uh, the notion of how uh, Americans were made, both in the U.S. out of a kind of raw material of immigrant stock in the 1920s, and try to see how those strategies match up with America's export of cultural phenomena that it called American to Europe and Asia in the 50s, 60s, and onward, and also to try to take a little closer look at what the reception of those things were like. Of course, people adopted things like uh, supermarket shopping or even wearing blue jeans, not because they felt that they were being American. Uh, usually. They basically had some other reason they were doing these things. So uh, that uh, next project will be an anthology with uh, articles by different authors to try to get at this notion of uh, what these transnational uh, patterns of cultural exchange meant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a great project. Just a quick story uh, along the same lines of odd American assimilation. My my mother's family is um, a couple of generations back from Germany, as are uh, many, many Americans. And when she, uh, actually, when I was growing up, she used to make German chocolate cake and explain to us that this is obviously what they made in the home country. Right. <laughs> it was actually designed by some woman in Texas and made with <laughs> German chocolate bars. It had nothing to do with Germany. It has coconut in it, for God's sake. <laughs> but we loved it, and we thought we were, uh, this, was our, this was our tradition. You know, as, <laughs> I still like German Traditions chocolate cake. Like that. I think it's really great. But anyway, Greg, thanks very much for talking to us today. It's a really terrific book. The name of it is Cold War on the Homefront, The Soft Power of Mid-Century Design. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and I hope that everybody goes out and buys it. Thanks for being Thank on the show, Greg. Thank you very much, Marshall. Absolutely. My pleasure. pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Greg Castillo about his new book, Cold War on the Homefront, The Soft Power of Mid-Century Design. I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.